Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having frank and open conversations with thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, hoping to use our combined experience to inspire you to be a better product manager, product leader, or just make better products. If that sounds like your type of poker game, why not push all in and head over to onenightinproduct.com, where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your favourite social media platform and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk to someone who's trained thousands of product teams across dozens of countries and lived to tell the tale. We talk about how product management has changed over all that time, the three different types of product manager, and the impossible job specs that we see looking for non-existent blue squirrel candidates. We also talk about the Quartz Open Framework, a Creative Commons licensed framework aiming to enable you to build products your customers love. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Steve Johnson. Steve's a product consultant who boldly claims to be able to help overcome the chaos in managing products. It sounds pretty good, but he hasn't seen my backlog. Steve's got a long career in marketing and product management, 15 years of product management instructor at Pragmatic Institute before striking out on his own with Under 10 Consulting, as well as co-founding Product Growth Leaders, a consortium of strategic advisors who defined a quartz open framework, an industry standard framework to help you get your product from idea to market. He also runs Product Camp in Washington, D.C., and given that he's also a published musician, I'm hoping he starts every session off with a nice sing-song. Hi, Steve. How are you tonight? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. And no, we will not be uh, starting off with any any music straight away. Uh, but my album is available on Spotify. There you go. Search for Not Exactly Steve. Fine, we will do that. And hopefully there are lots of product management related songs on there as well. <laughs> so, so first things first, you've got a couple of things going on at the moment. Let's start with your consulting, Under 10 Consulting. So what's a life in the day for Under 10 Consulting? Well, let me, let me go back a few years. So I spent 15 years, as you said, with Pragmatic Marketing, now Pragmatic Institute. And a lot of people would come up to me during class and say, you know, could you come back and help us do it? I mean, the theory was great, but it's the application where we're really sticking. And so I sat down with the leadership at Pragmatic and said, I really want to do this. And they said, wow, we really don't. So <laughs> you should, you know, that would be great, you know. And so I started my own company about 10 years ago. and initially, I was just really working with teams that had gone through training with me and were, you know, trying to apply its principles. But then I got a call from a guy about five years ago. And he said, I have 13 product managers in 13 different cities on three different continents. And bringing them all together in a room for training just isn't going to work. You know, so can you do something over the web? And I said, well, of course I can. And then I got off the phone and then I spent the next week trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to do this on the <laughs> web. <laughs> and this is before we had, you know, Google Meet or anything like that. So I was a very early adopter of Zoom. And a couple of things that I learned along the way was that you can't sit on a Zoom screen for six hours. Well, some people try. Yeah. It's hard enough to sit into, in a training room and be lectured at for six hours, but certainly not uh, in Zoom. So. I started doing, and, and this is actually leaning very close to answering your question. <laughs> I started doing 90-minute training sessions once a week. So when I sign up a client now, we typically do like a Monday or Tuesday lesson where we discuss a point or a method or a technique. 
And then I give them homework to apply it straight away so that they can master it with their own products rather than, oh, I have this fictitious product that is a salt shaker and a mood light, you know. (laughs) Instead, they do it with their own products. And then on Thursday or Friday, we come together for a peer review and everybody shares the work that they have done and critique one another. And what, what I learned about adult learning, and I suspect, you know, learning for children as well, is if you don't use something within a week, you'll forget it. So what I've been, uh, a typical day in the life for me is a class in the morning and a class in the afternoon. And a class may be me talking about techniques, or it may be doing a review of the work that they have done. I typically do like a 10-week program. So at the end of the 10 weeks, you've gone through the major artifacts of product management. You've got a playbook ready to use for your product and your organization. Right. And are those people all coming to you through Pragmatic or are you completely self-sufficient now and just taking on all comers and anyone that finds you? It's really both of those things. I mean, I'm still very friendly with the folks at Pragmatic and they do sometimes run into cases where people say what they've said to me all those years, you know, and so they'll send them my way. But what really happens is people connect with me through LinkedIn and they say, I took your class many, 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 (laughs) many years ago, you know, and having done it for so long, there are people who have seen me do webinars or they've seen me do product camps or they've seen me do training at under 10 or at Pragmatic. So people are reaching out to me directly and saying, hey, I've I've got some money to spend in the new year. Let's let's talk. Well, that's fair enough. It sounds like you've got a good pipeline going. But you weren't busy enough, obviously, because you started another initiative back in 2018, Product Growth Leaders with some other product leaders, including our mutual friend, Grant Hunter. Correct. One of the initiatives there was or is the Quartz Open Framework, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before we talk about that, what is Product Growth Leaders exactly? Is it just there to be custodian of that framework? Is it some kind of think tank? Is, is it a different consultancy or something completely different? It's a collection of consultancies. What happens is we find often I will be working with a team and they'll say, gosh, we really need help in this other area that I don't really know that much about. You know, we need some help with, I don't know, data science, or we need help with corporate strategy or, you know, something that I don't really have a a strong set of of methods around. And so I can turn to other people within the product growth leaders community and say, you know, does anybody have some, some good content here? And then the main thing that Grant and I set out to do with product growth leaders was build a community of these folks, both the people who provide services as well as the people who consume them. So he's been taking the lead on a lot of community stuff. So we have a forum in the product growth leaders community for what we call product leaders in transition, you know, people who are between jobs. Yep. And it's like, you know, it's like a an AA for product managers. We just, you know, <laughs> come together and talk about our frustrations, but also, you know, support one another and also give tips to one another. I mean, somebody the other day said, I'm interviewing for a job that's kind of, more tactical than I've been doing in the past. And how do I talk about that in a way that it doesn't sound like I'm settling? Yeah. Right. And and I hope he didn't use this. What I said was, you know, (laughs) it's really fun once in a while to do something that matters. You know, (laughs) When, when you're a VP, all you seem to do is go from one meeting to the next and then fight on other people's budgets. Right. Yeah. So 
Anyway, I hope he didn't say that. But uh, so we have that going on. And, and we have another group in the community focusing on defining product ops, which is a, a, a kind of a movement that yeah, I feel like. Big I've, buzzword. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I've kind of been around it my whole career and didn't really realize it. I mean, every place I go, I find myself saying, you know, you need a playbook, you need a method, you need standards. And what I encounter, in, and you mentioned it in the, in the intro, is, you know, I find so many product teams that are in chaos because they've all learned product management differently. You know, I read, yep. right? I read Marty's book. Oh, really? I read Marissa's book. Uh, I went to this seminar. I watched this great video. And so they've got a myriad methods that are just kind of a hodgepodge. And what we have in the world are not best practices, but common practices. And it's the adapting of those common practices to your reality that makes it a best practice for you. Yeah, I think that's the thing. And it's something we've riffed on a few times with guests on this podcast recently, the idea that you can't just take one of those books, read it, and then just go. Like, those yeah. books are fantastic, but they don't necessarily survive contact with the opposition, whoever that opposition is, be they sales or be they the founders or be they whoever else. So I think that's a really valid point and something that I'm definitely pushing as well from my side, especially working in B2B as I do, where so much of the general wisdom appears to be like B2C related or mass market consumer Agreed. products and stuff like that, which is obviously a really valuable and valid market. But at the same time, some of it just seems streets away from what you know, poor old long-suffering B2B folk have to worry about. Indeed. Well, you know, I think a lot of the books that you read are How I Did It Once. <laughs> or How I Would Have Done It If They'd Have Listened to Me, and This Is My yeah. Work of Fiction That I've Created Instead. <laughs> Indeed. But it's, it seems like, you know, uh, a lot of the book, a lot of the writing that comes out of Silicon Valley is, here's how we flip the company. We did our growth hacking and we artificially created a bunch of, of quote, users. And then we got some other fool to invest in the company. And now I'm free and I can write <laughs> about my success. But I, I, I'd say most of most all of my experience is B2B. And it's, it's very much business oriented, you know, more struggles with like managing a portfolio of products rather than we just have this one product. And as you said, dealing with a lot of political stuff. And, you know, tying that back to product ops, we've got 13 people in 13 cities on three different continents, all doing product management differently. And imagine how frustrating that is to the leadership <laughs> when every roadmap looks like it came from a different company. Yeah, no, I can certainly remember times in my past where a bit of standardization may have helped just a little bit. Not too much, you know, we still want to be agile and yeah. all of that stuff. But having some kind of basic framework and, and way of working, I think, is very helpful, at least as a starting point. I agree. But you started training with the Pragmatic Institute back in 1996. Correct. Uh, so 25 years ago. 25 years ago. And you spent 15 years across 37 countries training a thousand product management teams around the world, end quote. <laughs> now, that's a lot of time. And obviously, it's really good to have a, such a broad impact on the community. But 1996 is also quite long ago, and I wondered mm -hmm. if there had been any, or if there were any trends from back then, which you're frankly glad to see the back of, or if everything's still basically just the same. You know, it's not the same. I, and so I'm going to answer it backwards, I, I fear. When I started 
as a vendor, even before pragmatic marketing, product management was clearly a business role. It was about looking at Tam Sam Sam. It was looking at what problems exist in the market. What markets do we want to serve? What problems do they have? And, and let's do some research to make sure it really is a problem. And granted, we still had Seagull management, right? We still had uh, <laughs> the, the CEO swooping in and saying, oh, you know, God spoke to me in a dream and we need to change all of our dialogue boxes to, to chartreuse. Or, you know, the sales guy swooping in and saying, hey, I, ju I just uh, talked to a guy, which to a sales guy is a completed research study, <laughs> right? And we just need to add this thing. It doesn't look that hard to me. I mean, we still had those things, but it was clearly a business role. And I think what happened with the adoption of Agile was a really strong swing for product management to become almost entirely technology focused. And what I've seen in the last, oh, certainly five years, if not 10, is a lot of product marketing people stepping into the void that was created. And when I, when I started my company, again, back in 2012, I interviewed 100 CPOs and CTOs and said, you know, what has Agile done to product management? And it was so startling. I got 50% said, our life is forever changed for the good. And the other 50% said, it's been a complete disaster. <laughs> okay. And I think what happened was the ones that had success, they continued to have product managers with a business focus. And they moved their business analysts into a product owner role. And the ones who had failure took their product managers, renamed them product owners, and they spent the rest of their life writing Jira tickets. <laughs> yeah, I think I was going to talk about this later, but let's do it now. <laughs> I think one question that that brings to mind is that there's been quite a lot of discussion these days around the bastardization of the product owner role. And I think it's interesting because a lot of that seems to come from some of the scaling frameworks or just maybe misunderstandings about what these roles should be. But you see a lot of product owner job titles out there these days as actual mm -hmm. specific job titles and a lot of people advertising explicitly for product owners and almost treating them as kind of, as you've put it, like BAs, but a bit more than a BA, I guess, sort of BAs mm -hmm. with a product title and really leaving a lot of the strategy to other people because, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and really getting the POs to just do the execution. Correct. Now, for me, that's kind of anathema to how I think a product team should work. But are you saying that that's actually a model for success? Gosh, I don't want to be saying that. <laughs> well, it's interesting when you go back to the original writing around Scrum. Yeah. The product owner role was supposed to be a business role. It was yeah. representing the business to the dev team. It's the execution that seems to have gotten derailed. As you said, it's like the product owner is a senior business analyst doing, in some cases, uh, what I call the janitorial work of product management, <laughs> cleaning up the mistakes made by others or the secretarial role of product management of, you know, being sure to write everything down. It does seem to me that there are three critical roles that we all label something with product in it. 
there's somebody needs to determine our product strategy, which is where product management was 25 years ago. Somebody needs to figure out what we're going to build next, what's coming in the next release or the next PI or, you know, whatever. And that's a kind of a different mindset than the product strategy and a different skill set. And that's where I see the PO role belonging. And then there's a third role of go to market, uh, what we typically call a product marketing manager or what I prefer to call like a product growth manager, who's focusing on how do we sell more of what we've already built? So it's almost like there's three different jobs here, all with the same name product manager somewhere in there. (laughs) And yet one of them is about where do we want to be next year strategically? Where do we want to be in the next release technically? And where do we want to be? uh, Where we how are we going to achieve growth in our market with the products we have already made? But then there's the cliche of T-shaped people and wanting everyone to be kind of unicorns and all of the tiresome cliches that you read around and about Mm -hmm. the web and especially on places like Twitter. So are you a big fan then of specificity within those roles then and making sure that those are actually explicitly called out as separate roles, potentially with separate people in them? Or do you think that there's room for these mythical unicorns to just come and smash it all out of the park? Well, I haven't found a lot of unicorns. I've seen a <laughs> lot of unicorn job descriptions, right? Oh, yes. In fact, I have a friend, Karen Holtzblatt, who is a recruiter who specializes in software companies and really in product management. And she says they refer to that job position as the purple squirrel. It doesn't exist in nature, but it's like this perfect person who will also work for peanuts. <laughs> this the squirrel part. But, you know, I've seen them. Uh, they, they take a job description that they found off the web and they If they want to make it senior, they add numbers, right? So (laughs) I saw one not too long ago that wanted 15 years experience in social media. Oh, cool. So MySpace, right? Right. (laughs) I mean, I think I have that. Let's see. Uh, Yeah, I'd say I've got 22 years experience in social media in that I started writing a blog back before it was called a blog. Uh, in fact, somebody at the de- at the time, t- uh, soon after, said, I really like your blog. And I said, don't use that kind of language around me. You know, what the <laughs> hell is a blog? <laughs> but I started blogging in 99. So I guess I'm qualified for this junior product marketing position they were trying to fill in- with this purple squirrel job posting. Well, there you go. Good luck with that interview. Yeah. But I'm assuming that having worked with so many product people and product teams over the years, and obviously latterly with so many product companies as well, that you've seen pretty much everything. And we've talked about some of those things already. But do organizations still find ways to surprise you? You know, yes. And, and in this case, in a good way. I mean, I, I tend to see the darker side of the world. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can always find humor in dysfunction. But I've been kind of tickled at some of the companies I've been working with lately who really do see product management as this strategic business-oriented role and have gotten clarity on what is really important. I'm delighted, in fact, by uh, a lot of the things that I've been seeing about the product triad, or the product trio is sometimes called where, you know, a, a product person, probably a product owner or a product planning person, you know, the person focused on what's next is working closely with a designer and a dev lead. One of my big rants is product managers should not be prototyping. And it just causes everybody to flip out because they're (laughs) like, well, wait, that's all I do. And I'm like, great. What are your design skills? Because 
Prototyping is solutioning. Product management is about problems, you know? And they're like, well, the developers won't know what to build if I don't give them a prototype. And I'm like, well, you know, you're giving them a specification. So that means you're basically treating your developers as if they're factory workers. And, you know, maybe they are. Maybe that's what we hired. But the successes we certainly see seem to be product manager or product owner working with a designer or working with a dev lead. Now, this is interesting. And before we talk about your framework, which I want to talk about, we've kind of skirted around it a couple of times with regards to, well, PIs, for example. We've talked about program increments. We've talked about product owners. We've talked about production lines. Now, I understand that once upon a time, you were trained in SAFE. I was. Scaled Agile Framework. And you were trained by the founder or the creator of SAFE as well. Correct. Dean Leffingwell. Dean Leffingwell. So that must have been an interesting time. And I guess where I'm going to go with this question is, as we've said, you've seen a few things in your time. You've seen various types of organization. You've seen dysfunction in teams and the challenges of building software and building products. Is SAFE genuinely the solution to any of those problems that you've seen? Wow. You really put me on the spot here. I'm not going to send this to Dean. Don't worry. (laughs) Well, you know, I think Dean Levingwell is one of the smartest people around. He's been doing this for many, many years. And I think what he's done is identified a bunch of great methods like you know, allocating a a dev budget and saying, this is how much money you have, build as much as you can in the time frame. You know, I I think that SAFE in many ways is trying to codify a lot of really good practices in a way that is extremely friendly to senior management. (laughs) And I think that most agile methodologies are kind of anti-management. And, and, I'm, and I'm with them on this, by the way. I mean, I really think I, I've seen so much management interference of product planning, if you will, that it's like, we love the idea of Agile as long as you do waterfall. <laughs> you know? Really short waterfalls is the ticket, right? Right. But I, I think the reality is I've worked with teams where they, they go, you know, it's clear that the product manager or the senior leadership don't know what they want. So we're going to work for two weeks and stop and show you where we are and say, hey, are we headed the right direction? And then get some feedback and keep doing it, you know. And I don't know that SAFE necessarily embraces that, although (laughs) it's in there, you know. I, I think it's just so overwhelming to a lot of people to see like every best practice or every uh, smart technique all on one graphic. That graphic is horrifying, by the way. I mean, I've never seen a more scary picture. Even if it did make sense, that picture would just turn me straight off. I don't know how they expect to. It's super overwhelming. And then, you know, of course, there's four flavors of it, too. So <laughs> I, I, I think that in many ways, the, the folks at Scaled Agile are reacting to kind of management demands on the methodology. And, and I, I, I tend to skew the other way. And that is to say, you know, let's have a few simple methods that work, you know, like, I really like Kanban. And I was talking to a team a while back, and they said, well, yeah, but we're not in development, we're in marketing. And I'm like, do you build things? And they're like, oh, yeah, we build sales and development tools, and we build videos, and we build all these other things. I'm like, then you should be using Kanban. Yeah. And it never occurred to them that 
product planning methods could be applied to marketing planning. So I think that there, there are a lot of great techniques. I embrace, well, I, I signed the Agile Manifesto back in 2001. I embrace the idea of conversation over documentation. So often I see people trying to put so much information in a JIRA ticket when in fact <laughs> uh, a conversation would do it. You know, there's the similar rule of if you've had three emails on this, why don't we pick up a phone and talk about it? Yeah. I, I've seen function and dysfunction in safe and scaled agile and scrum of scrums and less and, you know, pick your flavor in many ways. And uh, this will, I'm sure, offend now the rest of the people who are not offended. <laughs> in many ways, it's like a religion. You know, is it a philosophy or a religion? And, and you go, well, you know, you must have a daily stand up and it must be 7.2 minutes long. And you're like, OK, that, <laughs> that's now the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And I think the companies that really embrace the spirit of Agile are finding good results. Yeah, that's funny, though, because you often get people pushing back on that kind of comment, which is one that I've made often as well. Like, it's about agility, not agile with a capital A and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I genuinely believe that. But there are some people that will just push back and say, yeah, but that's what you would say, because, you know, that's what everyone always says. The fact that it doesn't work isn't anyone's fault. It's always that you're not doing it properly and that you're not believing it or whatever. And it's like, I get where they're coming from because a lot of people haven't really seen proper agility. Mm -hmm. Like they've not been properly agile. And right. it is a it does sound like a cop out when you're trying to defend working in that way because people are like, Well, that's what you would say. But actually mm -hmm. that is what I would say because it's it feels like it's true. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I do think that anybody who has actually gone through a successful agile project can't fathom doing it any other way. Yeah, exactly. And yet I was, I was doing a briefing for a group of executives a couple of weeks ago. And I said the shocking statement of, you know, there was nothing exactly wrong with the artifacts of waterfall. And, you know, three people had vapors and had to be, you know, <laughs> woken up. The problem with waterfall wasn't the artifacts. It was where the learning occurred. Yeah. You know, we'd spend a few months learning and then we'd spend nine months writing the perfect requirements document. And then we spend nine months writing the perfect code. And then we would beta test and that would be the second time we would learn. So we've gone a year and a half without learning. Whereas, you know, what we uh, what we have done with the Quartz Open Framework is put learning at the core that at every step at every release candidate, at every artifact creation, you've got an opportunity to stop and test and validate, make sure you're not, you know, smoking your own brochures and, and getting <laughs> real value to customers. All right. So let's talk about the Quartz Open Framework then, since you just mentioned it. You trained all those people and then struck out on your own. You've been consulting and helping other people consult via the collective that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And you created the Quartz Open Framework off the back of that. Yes. And you touched on it yourself just then, some of the things that that does for you, but helicopter pitch time. Okay. Since you did used to be in marketing as well. <laughs> what does the Quartz Open Framework do for me? Well, let me back up. Here's the thing. Every organization is unique. 
this is the problem with the concept of best practice, you know, but your product and your people and your marketplace is different than any other that exists. And so why would you think that what works for that company would work for your company? And so a lot of the frameworks that we see tend to be rather prescriptive. But, you know, hey, I don't write software. I write courseware. So I don't really need an MRD necessarily, you know. So as I started working with companies trying to help them define their process, I realized that I needed a tool to help them make sure that they embrace kind of the lean principles, you know, don't waste a lot of time doing stuff that you're going to throw away, right? So before we go into coding, why don't we do a one-page business model canvas and see if the leadership team is going to fund this thing? Because I don't want to get three or four or six sprints in and have them say, oh, no, we don't like that idea at all. You know, there's no funding for this. Or going down the path of, we'll just try to use our existing resources and see if, if, if we can sneak it through. I mean, that, that's not the way you run a business, right? So I needed a, a tool that was flexible enough to, to be adaptable. And so in the time that I've been doing this work, I've met a lot of smart people. And I brought a lot of those smart people together for a long series of Saturdays. And we would get on Zoom and we'd uh, bring up a, a Google Sheet and we developed this thing to be generic and extensible and adaptable, but, but fundamentally make sure that you, you've articulated your idea at the right times. I mean, for instance, one of the, the nice things about, say, a, a business model canvas is it doesn't say how much revenue you're going to generate. Because who the hell knows, right? <laughs> we're, we're still at a one-page business case. We don't know where the revenue, what the revenue is going to be, but we do know where the revenue is going to come from, right? We, we're going to do advertising. We're going to do uh, third-party sales. We're going to uh, sell it on the website. We know where it's going to come from. We have no idea what it is. We haven't done any of our market sizing, right? So that was really the idea. And Working with, you know, some folks I knew from my days at Pragmatic and the people I've met through the many companies I've, I've worked around, we came up with this Quartz framework as a way of helping you design your own process. And what we've done is we've got a couple of samples. I mean, here's, here's a super lean, minimum viable process where there's like, you know, one artifact per step. And then here's one that we did with a company that has a SaaS product. And this is what we did with a company that had an on-premise enterprise product. And each, each of them are different, but they follow the same structure. And as I said earlier, the core of the structure is continuous learning. So it's not learn once, work for a year and a half, learn a second time. It's con you know at every step along the way, validate what your hypotheses are and make sure you're not going down the wrong path. So this is very much then focused on the kind of identifying what you want to build and working out whether you want to build it based on the learning that you uncover as you go through that process. Mm -hmm. Does it then follow it through all the way to actually building it and putting it out into the market or does it kind of hand off at some point? Yes, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think of it mostly as the product management work and where we have connections to other methods. So 
you know, it, so for instance, there are six steps. Uh, they're arranged in a circle because we all live in an iterative world, right? We don't live in a linear world. And it starts with discovery, you know, find problems in the market that are worth solving and then commit to them with your leadership. And your leadership in this case may be, you know, your spouse or your parents, right? <laughs> but somehow or another, get commitment that we're going to fund this thing. And then we move into describing the personas and their problems. And this is where we bring in designers and product managers and dev leads to be part of the customer discovery work. We describe the problems and then we create a solution. And while the solution is being created, we take that same set of descriptions over to the delivery team and say, okay, somebody's going to have to get this thing into the market. What do you guys need for a launch? Here are the personas and here are their problems. And here's what we're planning on building. And here's our roadmap. You know, start working. If you're ready, you can start working now or, you know, when, whenever you need to start. So it's not, oh, hey, we finished the code. We're going to fling it over the wall to launch. Uh, it's going to go live on Friday. So you probably ought to tell some people, right? And then the final step is connecting with the market, which is where sales and services and success connects with, you know, real people doing real things. And it, again, at the core is learning. So it's the logical flow of steps of how an idea ultimately makes it through planning into go to market planning and ultimately into the market. And then you adapt it to your business. And you've released this under the Creative Commons license, I believe. Correct. So anyone can just go and download this, take it and run, which Correct. is obviously a fantastic service to the community. But at the same time, do you have any way to kind of upsell or make any money off the back of that? Or is this literally a community effort? It's primarily a community effort, although we have had people in the community say, could I get certified? There you go. Dean will be proud. There we go. So sure, you can get certified in this. But what we're really looking for is, there. again, there are some, we do have an exam on whether you are quartz knowledgeable, but we're also looking for contributors, people who say, you know what, I have used this tool, it does work for us, and here's how we implemented it at a higher ed company or in a medical technology company or whatever. And so we're going to build, hopefully, a library of implementations of case studies. So not only Creative Commons, but kind of open source as well, which is very exciting. I think so. Absolutely. I'll, I'll check it out. Now, we've got this far through the interview without digging into sales at all. And I know that you have some opinions about sales. Is there anything about working with sales effectively in that framework? Or is, is that a lost cause? <laughs> well, I do have somewhat of a reputation of dissing on <laughs> salespeople. And yet, ultimately, it comes back to if we haven't empowered the salespeople with the tools they need to be effective then a lot of bad behavior results. Yeah. So we call out specifically in the court's framework that, you know, when we're ready to start connecting with the market, we need to be briefing the sales team and training the sales team and empowering the sales team. And when they come back and say, hey, I know you said to go after colleges, but we found a gas station that wants the product <laughs> as well. You know, we have to say, you know, that's not really what we sent you out to do. 
But if we haven't told them who it's for, then they just do go wandering through the county, finding anybody who will, you know, return their calls. So whenever I see bad sales behavior, you know, ultimately it comes back to, did we empower them with the right tools and or are they doing exactly what their management asked them to do, right? Go find anybody who will give you money and then we'll worry about it on the back end. <laughs> but then our friend, you know, uh, Rich Marinoff, uh, yeah. he's, he's pretty tremendous too. And, and he's, <laughs> he says, you know, what's really funny for product managers, and it's a real difficult thing for product managers, is we say no to salespeople because it's not on the roadmap or because it's not in the market that we're serving. And what they hear is, ah, I have begun an argument, <laughs> right? The, the product manager thinks I have just finished my argument. I just said no. And they're like, oh, let the selling begin, right? Now, this yeah. is where I escalate and go around you and go above you and everything else. So in some ways, all the things that irritate me about salespeople is they're doing exactly what they have been trained to do, which is <laughs> go around me. <laughs> yeah. Now, I do love Rich's quote around, to paraphrase, like, you shouldn't be surprised when people that you've hired to be specifically persuasive and to close deals turn their powers inwards onto the founders to get your objections overridden. So, uh, yeah, I, I do agree. I think that alignment with sales can be very tricky because in some cases, the motivations are different based on explicit benefits or compensation that they get for certain mm -hmm. types of behavior. I think in some cases, that's just not aligned even at the leadership level. Like People are just they have different rewards for different behaviors. And I think one mm -hmm. of the key things to do with salespeople, and maybe there's a different framework we can make for this, is like actually just getting that alignment from the top around this is actually what we're trying to do. And like you mm -hmm. say, don't try and sell to gas stations, but actually from the top down, say this is this is the strategy and you get potentially penalized for going off piste, right? And that, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the only way to control the behavior, right? Because otherwise, if you're just rewarding people for anything, then they're going to do anything. So makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I was working with a team up north at a company whose name you would know. And when I said product managers needed to have firsthand experience with the market, they were aghast. I mean, they, the, the salespeople <laughs> were freaking out. And I said, well, tell me about some of your recent insights from the market. And in our discussions, it became clear that they weren't talking to the market either. The salespeople were talking to distributors and the distributors were talking to the dealers and the dealers were the ones talking to the end users. So there's like no one in the room who has talked to anyone who has ever used their product. And I'm like, how in the world can we trust that information if we don't have somebody with firsthand experience? And in, in some ways, it's kind of like sex. You know, you, you can read about it. But if you have firsthand experience with it, it's a very different experience. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense, though. But I guess one of the objections that I do hear back sometimes is, yeah, you have to be like an industry expert to go and speak to these people. So if your product manager doesn't happen to have spent 15, 20 years in the field with these people that they're selling to, then they don't trust it, which I think is a shame because, as we all know, product managers there to ask questions. But speaking of product managers, you are also creating a bit of a dynasty at the same time. I understand your daughter is also a product manager. Yes, she is. At another company, so not your company. But I guess there's two ways to look at that. Either she has been living and 
breathing product management throughout your career and listening to all of your attempts at trying to make training materials over the dinner table? Or she kind of just happened upon it herself. So how did that come about? Turns out one of my clients was looking for a very special skill set. And I said, well, gosh, my daughter has just returned from Japan, having spent three years there teaching English in Japan. And she said, oh, that would be ideal for us. Does she have any product management expertise? And I said, well, she's been sitting at my dinner table for you know her whole <laughs> life. It was a natural fit for her. And so she has, has gone through a number of product management jobs and is, really seems to enjoy the work. I mean, she enjoys being, you know, being the representative of the business and also the representative of the market. And she seems to enjoy the work very much. It also strikes me as fascinating to have the one family where you could actually sit at the dinner table and talk about product management. And actually, like at least two of you would know what you were talking about as well, <laughs> because of course, no one really knows what product managers do. So it seems, although it is also funny, there were a lot of times when I was teaching locally and, you know, in like a public seminar or something, and, and I'd have my wife come do registration or I, I'd have my daughter or my son come do registration and then they'd sit and listen. And, and then at the end of the day, they'd say, as far as we can tell, all he does is tell stories about the family. <laughs> because I find product management metaphors everywhere I look. <laughs> yeah, I, I get in trouble for metaphors myself all the time, so I can completely <laughs> understand where you're coming from there. And uh, where can people find you after this if they want to chat to you more about the Quartz Framework or any of the other stuff they've heard about here? Well, great. Um, probably the best way is to reach out to me through under10consulting.com. That's under10consulting.com. You can catch me on LinkedIn and a bunch of other places, but LinkedIn or, or my website will be probably the best places. I will put them in the show notes and hopefully you'll get a few people heading in your direction. Well, that's been really interesting and fantastic to chat through some of the highlights of your career and some of your thoughts around things like well you know salespeople, but also uh, product management in general hopefully we can stay in touch but as for now thanks for taking the time glad to be here as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to one night in check out some of my other fantastic guests sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>